This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. The evening of President Trump's inauguration, the then press secretary, Sean Spicer, came out and delivered an impromptu briefing to the American people. It certainly took the White House press corps by surprise, as it isn't often standard practice for a press secretary to brief Americans on the same day that their boss gets inaugurated to the Oval Office. But sure enough, Sean Spicer came out and told everyone that the crowds that were being reported on about the attendance at President Donald J. Trump's inauguration were actually incorrect. And regardless of what satellite imagery showed, the attendance was the biggest attendance a president has ever seen for an inauguration ever. A few days later, White House Senior Advisor Kellyanne Conway joined Chuck Todd on NBC's premier flagship Sunday news show, Meet the Press, and coined a term that was actually angled at saying that there are different versions of reality and famously came up with the quip, alternative facts. A few months later, more and more NFL players started following suit with the lessons and the observations of Colin Kaepernick and started taking a knee during the national anthem at football games, specifically in protest of the allegations of the treatment of the black community, namely from the police forces in different communities around the country. Instead of celebrating the concept of free expression that these NFL players have every right to invoke, President Trump actually denounced that and said that they are sullying the game, the NFL commissioners have no control over their own teams, and that these NFL players were disrespecting America. And then, a couple months after that, most recently this week, it was revealed that the White House issued guidance to the Centers for Disease Control, an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services uh, that looks out for you or I to make sure that there are no epidemics or pandemics that, that spread across our world. Um, and specifically came out with guidance that the CDC could no longer use words like cause-based or transgendered or diversity. In each of these four scenarios, inauguration falsehoods, alt-facts, demonizing the concept of free expression, or constricting what one federal agency can or cannot say, you have a recurring theme. The concept of being a free and outspoken and expressive society is currently being challenged, not because we aren't entitled to our First Amendment rights, but specifically the way in which information is being put out into the world, is being respected in the world, and is being analyzed in the world has never faced more scrutiny in modern times than we see today. Certainly beyond alt facts is the concept of a media that is pushing out information on a 24-hour news cycle only further catalyzed by a digital media apparatus that many folks, including the president, are increasingly losing their trust with. The concept of alt facts was one side of the equation when it came to information and the veracity of facts out there, but the concept of fake news is resonant on all of our minds. I myself went as fake news for Halloween, but the concept is a little less scary when you think about it in terms of the eye of a journalist. Journalists day in and day out go out there, do their best to gather facts, do their best to confirm multiple sources, and try and find scoops that shed light on the overall project of democracy. Joining American Enough today, we have storied reporter Timothy Berger and political reporter 
Daniel Lippmann. Tim Berger spent his career analyzing insights of various presidential administrations for Time Magazine, New York Daily News, for Bloomberg, for Town and Country Magazine, and now freelances as he investigates everything from the relationship from Senator John McCain and Donald Trump to the state of affairs around how political enclaves are informing future elections. Daniel Lippmann is part of the original team that curates Politico's daily briefing, notably known as Political Playbook, which gathers information and insights as to what's driving the news in Washington that day. But Dan himself started his career fact-checking journalists as he was right in college to make sure that they were covering the right parcels of information as they put out their narratives into the world. For both of them, journalism is not just a moment in time that's on the radars of most Americans as expression gets challenged and news gets poo-pooed as fake. For them, journalism is about shedding light on the most core aspect of our democracy, the ability to engage, the ability to be informed, and the ability to understand the world around us. But in this day and age, when expression is challenged constantly and you have an Oval Office that poo-poos and demonizes certain media outlets, how do we trust the media? And frankly, how do reporters do their job day in and day out when they not only have to share the facts of a story, but they also have to look out for the brand and reputation of trustworthiness for the outlets that they represent? Tim and Daniel, join American Enough. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. The face of American journalism has evolved not just more recently because of the power of the internet, but specifically because the question of trust in the institution of the media has really, really been begged by the current administration. Over time, accusations of fake news, understated facts, and misinformed sources have come to light as a almost daily talking point from this White House. And on one hand, one can easily dismiss President Trump's approach to discounting or counting on certain news outlets. On the other hand, it started to actually catch the attention of autocrats in other regimes who are also invoking President Trump's line of fake news to discourage and discount sources or news that they don't like or don't find favorable. So that as the modern face of journalism evolves, we ask ourselves, what does journalism mean for America today? Joining the pod, Daniel Lippmann, writer for Politico and an original editor for Political Playbook. Um, also joining the pod today, Tim Berger, who spent a lifetime invested in journalism, writing and contributing for everything from Vice Media to Politico to Time Magazine and the New York Daily News. Dan and Tim, thanks for joining American Enough. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So let's let's just dive right into it. For for both of you, and let's start with you, Tim. Uh, what does it mean to be an American journalist today? Well, I think um, it's never been more important uh, to to be doing journalism. And um, you know, my hats off to those who are doing it full time and every day, like Daniel. Um, and as I used to, but uh, it's never been more important to be a journalist and also to uh, really um, seek quality in your work in terms of being factual and fair. It's never been more important and perhaps never been more challenging, especially, you know, for folks like Daniel covering the White House regularly. 
And I guess to that point, I mean, right now is a historic moment in time in which you have a different kind of presidency, even a different engagement from that administration in the way that they interact with the press. But Dan, as as you and your colleagues cover the White House day to day, do you feel that it's important to continue to just stay focused on gathering the facts and writing a story? Or do you have to simultaneously be mindful of both the story as well as preserving the brand of your outlet and preserving the brand of Politico in terms of uh, maintaining trust and, and making sure that you're verifying your sources? I think you have to do both because if you just uh, focus on you know, getting scoops and you don't think about your reputation as a journalist and your news outlet, uh, then if no one trusts you, then uh, no one is going to pay attention to what you write. And so the reason that outlets like The Post, The New York Times, Politico have done well in the last couple of years is that, uh, you know, people trust us. And so, uh, you know, I, my theory of the case is that uh, if you didn't have strong journalism and independent reporting, then the public would know so much less about uh, the administration and the Mueller investigation. What is interesting is that the Robert Mueller and the special prosecutor, they read all of our reports and they use that as kind of a guide to understanding uh, how to proceed in their investigation. So uh, I think we're doing, you know, the American public uh, a huge service in holding uh, an administration that uh, has autocratic tendencies in the eyes of Democrats accountable. And that's a great point, especially because, you know, for, for listeners that aren't aware, um, Daniel and the team he works with uh, every morning publishes a curated set of stories of the day and uh, insights that will undoubtedly inform the habits or the actions in Washington. I'm curious, though, how do you feel in an era um, and, and, you know, you can I would love to hear from you both on this in an era in which media is being vilified in terms of, as as Tim said, the concept of fact checking couldn't be more important now than ever. Um, you still have a sense of every morning people waking up, um, reading both of your reporting, obviously intently reading Politico's playbook. Um, d- does it seem at odds that you have on the one hand a questioning of this trust in a in a the fourth estate? an American institution rooted in our Constitution, um, and on the other hand, uh, still a daily, almost religious adherence to checking in on it? Or does that seem like fairly standard politics to you both? I think that uh, the questioning of the media has been more about more coming from the heartland and less about the uh, influencers that I'm trying to reach in Washington and New York and across the country. Uh I think Fox News and Trump uh, and the conservative media have done a concerted campaign to try to delegitimize mainstream outlets uh, like mine and others uh, because they know that uh, the reporting we do uh, hurts the conservative cause. And, you know, this is true on, you know, some liberals uh, bashing reporting too, but uh, it's primarily on the right because uh, Trump and Republicans, they know that. Uh, if the American people uh, fully trust the media, then there have been no chance for Trump to get elected. You even have people you know, who question whether the allegations against Trump are, this, you know, the sexual harassment stuff last year. Uh, 
uh, are legitimate. And that it was uh, very fact-based reporting by a number of outlets uh, that revealed that. And so it's, uh, but I, I think it's important that we don't get, uh, we in the media don't get locked into a battle where we're on the side of Democrats uh, against Trump. It's more about just do your jobs the best you can, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And that's a yes. really, really good point. I mean, Tim, for you, who has not only covered um, politics, culture, society, and, and this nation for a variety of different outlets, but you've also sort of seen the entire landscape of media evolve, um, not only in terms of how column inches get filled or how uh, the internet has sort of powered a different form of reporting, but you've also sort of seen an evolution in the way reporters engage their sources, in the ways they engage the government, and, and frankly, the way this uh, press corps following the White House engages this press secretary. For, for you, what, what do you see as sort of the the biggest sense of evolution from when you first started reporting um, to where the, the notion of being a journalist is right now? Um, well, a couple of things. Um, one is, uh, obviously, when I started, you know, you, you had fax machines, you had, you had no internet, uh, you had no email, um, and uh, you, you had no cell phones, really. A cell phone was a huge piece of equipment that was fairly exotic, um, and only, you know, rich folks and government people really had them. So now and it was a brick. Has, it was a huge brick. I remember seeing a staff person for the Speaker of the House at the time. Actually, I remember seeing Tom Nides, who maybe some of you know, with a, with a cell phone, and it was a fairly exotic um, you know, device. And now, uh, with the internet, uh, comms is completely different. People are texting with, with high-level government officials and senators. Uh, I'm sure Daniel does that all the time. And then... Uh, it's kind of a weird feeling. <laughs> yeah, and then... Um, you have the internet, which changed the way news is delivered, and then forces people to file rather than you know working for you know filing once a week if you work in a magazine or filing a couple times a week. Uh, when I worked at Roll Call when I was younger, and it came out twice a week, and suddenly you're filing multiple times a day, um, and and so that's a completely different uh, scenario in journalism. And what that helps lead to is sometimes haste makes waste, people are rushing to get something new on the internet or refresh their story. Uh, they know that other people can publish a scoop it ahead of them. So sometimes people get sloppy. And that's how some of these big errors happen that then feed into the next thing, next point I wanted to make, which is, uh, you know, when, when an error is made, there's no assumption of good faith anymore. There's, it seems like there's an immediate accusation of of a reporter having fabricated something in order to damage the subject of the story, which lately has mostly been the president. And so there's immediate accusations of bad faith, fake news. But one point I want to make, and I, I'm sure Daniel will agree that with this, living it every day, there is zero incentive for a reporter to make an error or report something that's not completely correct. Hmm. Zero incentive. So the, the accusation of reporters inventing stuff is itself preposterous. And the more people say it, the more ridiculous it is. But of course, it's got this sense of legitimacy among some of the president's supporters in the heartland. So people 
buy into the fact that for some reason it would be in someone's interest to report fake news. That's like saying, you know, a stockbroker wants wants to sell people stock that goes down. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That's like saying someone would want to buy a hotel that's worthless or uh, burn a hotel down, right? I mean, right. It's, point it I would, doesn't make any sense. The point I would make is that uh, when the term fake news first came into in a recent existence, it described you know, Russian and Eastern European uh, people who were uh, you know, bad actors and spreading you know, real fake news um, to Americans through Facebook and Twitter and uh, other outlets, uh, Reddit, uh, mostly to damage Hillary Clinton and Democrats. You know, saying, oh, she is sick, she's about to die, or, you know, various falsehoods. And now very few people seem to talk about that. It's more about the, uh, the Trump accusation that uh, mainstream outlets are fake news. And so I think that's been a, uh, an effort to shift the attention of the public from those Macedonian fake news uh, entrepreneurs uh, to, you know, try to, you know, label the Washington Post or the New York Times uh, as the real fake news. And so I think it's been a pretty successful uh, effort in terms of the labeling. I would say that uh, if you look at, I think it's either Pew or Gallup, trust in the media has gone up a few percentage points in the last year or so because people recognize, hey, the media is actually on our side. Uh, and that you know, there's a, a huge value to it, uh, especially now. Very few, like during the Obama administration, you probably could uh, elaborate on this, Vikram. Like uh, the media was very important, but it's not like every day there were like breaking Watergate type stories uh, about right. the Obama administration. So. Yeah, and I think you're you're spot on. I mean, um, even as as Tim said, you you had a a a different pace um, that's evolved more recently and, and certainly during the eight years that Barack Obama was president, that, that pace was sort of being adjusted to by the communications offices and the PR offices for every cabinet member and, and the White House. Um, but th there, there seemed to be a big difference. There was a, a focus on trying to build rapport with writers, with reporters, um, pitch them on stories and try and get them to espouse a narrative, for example, that, you know, the economy was recovering and that we had added, you know, several hundreds of thousands of jobs back. And even if, if there was a wage gap, that this was on a course of, of correction. Um, you could toggle back and forth with the reporter as to whether that was fair or inappropriate construing of that um, reality. But but that was the sort of rapport that you had with a journalist while working in government or working at the White House. Now it seems that you have to both contend for the story that you want to put out there, as well as the the veracity or the integrity of the institution that you're reporting on behalf of. Uh, have you found, uh, Dan, as you cover specifically this White House, that the way in which you build relationships um, with with those on the other side of the equation, those in the administration or those on Capitol Hill, do you feel like you have to do extra to, to gain their trust or to build a sort of, of sense of connectivity with them? And and I guess secondarily, Tim, for you, how, was this concept of, of fake news 
even an idea, even if it wasn't termed that way when you first started reporting? Is this is this sort of a an ongoing battle we've always faced with government, or is this a relatively new one? Um, Dan, let's start with you. Sure. So the one thing I would say is that I am not like an average political reporter. So since most people want to be in playbook, the press flags for different government agencies under Trump, even, they are uh, you know, trying to get stuff in and they are trying to keep a good relationship with me. And whereas uh, I, I, I battle with them every so often, maybe once a week, but there are some reporters, say at CNN, that are every day it's a constant battle. And so to be fair to the Trump administration, and I would say that this applies to a lot of different uh, reporters, so not just me and my two playbook colleagues, is that uh, it's not as different as you would think okay. to deal with the press flax. They actually, uh, you know, you become friendly with them. Uh, if you deal with one another on a daily basis, uh, it is in everyone's interest to be collegial to one another and to recognize that everyone has a job to do. And so mostly it's... Uh, you know, it's not as bad as it seems. They they are very interested in making sure that their side of the story is in, and they accept that we have a, a role to play. It's more on the uh, when they're going on TV or you know, in the press briefing, but for the average DHS or DOJ flack, uh, you know, the articles are probably more critical because there is just more to cover about uh, those different agencies. But sure. on a person interpersonal level, it's actually it's not that bad. Um, and before I answer the portion that you were directing at me, uh, Vikram, I wanted to ask Daniel. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Daniel, that uh, since you're doing playbook and most everyone wants to be in there, um, perhaps you know some of the flacks are kinder to you. Uh, do you feel like they're as kind to say Ken Vogel, your former colleague who's at the Times, or you know to more investigative-oriented reporters? Do you think that the uh, administration is as uh, friendly with them as they are with you, or other than Maggie Haberman, it seems like uh, it, it might be tough to develop those relationships if you're if you're um, on the investigative side. Maggie seems to be the maestro playing everybody against Absolutely. each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would say that uh, you know the best sources are not the flax, and so meeting people who are on the periphery of uh, the administration but still have inside intelligence. Those are the people that I'm trying to develop relationships with uh, to get good items and good stories. And so, you know, if I have a good relationship with a flack, great, but that's not my goal in my journalism career. And so, uh, but I would say if you talk to Ken uh, or other reporters, you know, even like Josh Dossie, you know, Annie Carney, uh, Phil Rucker, um, I think the atmosphere is, is bad in terms of the... Uh, basically, atmospherics of the anti-press jihad they're on, but I think uh, they still have uh, pretty collegial relationships with the uh, with a lot of the administration officials. The you know I don't think maybe Michael Cohen or uh, some of the people who are targets of the uh, investigation or are really are really in the hot seat uh, for the Trump administration. Maybe uh, if you're a principal, then you probably don't like Ken Vogel or uh, Josh Dossie. But if you're not a principal and you're just a staffer just trying to do his job, 
and keep his reputation intact for when you go to the private sector and you need to deal with people like Ken and me, then uh, it's not in your uh, self-interest to basically, uh, you know, muddy Dam the water. Yeah, and damage that rapport. Yeah. So uh, you are asking, I think, Vikram, if this is completely different now than it used to be. Uh, and since right. I'm the old guy, since I'm the old guy here, you asked <laughs> that of me. Well, well, well uh, also, you know, also just to, to add a piece of context besides you being, you know, a seasoned mind on this, it, it's more in terms of, you know, Fox News has been on air for, for years. Um, MSNBC has been on air for years. And yet now it seems like they are both bear hugging these distinct camps, these distinct kind of enclaves that they represent. One may be speaking more to the heartland, allegedly, and one may be speaking more to the to the coasts, allegedly. Um, but they, they've been around for a while. So this concept of playing to a base as a reporter or someone shunning someone else's outlet with an ad hominem attack of them being untrustworthy or making up facts or being fake, um, it, it almost seems as though that since these outlets have been around for so long and their reputations for what those outlets are or are not in the same way that you identified certain reporters and their reputations, um, it almost seems like, why is this now just coming to bear? Is it something unique to this president's bully pulpit or has this been going on all along or something else altogether? Right. Well, um, I think that, you know, to some extent, certainly it's always been the case that public figures excoriate reporters who, who do tough stories on them. And that happened to me many times. And, um, you know, you expect it because politicians are politicians and they will say what they need to say to try and defend themselves. Uh, and so that just as a reminder that you need to be you, your stories need to be true, fair and accurate. And then you, you don't care if they're criticizing you. Uh, it's when you screw up and get called out that it's that it's, you know, that it's horrible, frankly. An error in a story is the worst thing, really, in the business that can happen. Again, that goes to, you know, why would someone intentionally make an error, you know, report something incorrect? It's just preposterous. Um, so it's always happened to some extent, but now the the broad, the you know, painting with a broad brush is, I think, perhaps is happening more and saying it's all fake except what I say or what I tweet. You know, that's that's the um, senator, the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York had a had a term that he coined in another context, defining deviancy down. That's really kind of what hmm. is happening. It, you're going the lowest common denominator is 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 certainly plunging to a new nadir. And, you know, in many respects, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, as as you put it, Dan, you know, there's there's a sense of this jihad against um, the fourth estate, as, against media outlets, as you know, not being able to be verified sources of information. Therefore, you should ignore. Uh, commentary on policy outcomes, commentary on congressional investigations, commentary on the tax package, um, but but there is this 
there at the end of the day, there's still this concept of reporting as being core to our constitution. I mean, certainly codified in the First Amendment, but American idealism and the pursuit for a more perfect union was always informed by exposing and shining a light on hard truths or or tough realities, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, that we need to confront as a nation. Uh, you know, d- at the same time, though, there are a lot of folks that say that, you know, the media has been overly sensationalist, that sometimes they're feeding into what Donald Trump is saying as opposed to what he is doing, you know, notably coverage around um, a shooting will have, uh, you know, as tragic as it is, um, there will be a sensationalized approach to broadcast uh, reporting in terms of the way that they even uh, identify the the music, the the kind of the cover screen that they use to describe the work. Um, at the same time, there was also there's also been a lot of outcry as to the lack of coverage of FEMA dollars flowing into Puerto Rico for recovery. Um, and you know maybe when you look to foreign policy, um, I, I know Dan that you you started your career in many respects not just fact checking folks. But also writing on uh, Syrian serious civil war for Huffington Post, and, and there's been some commentary that maybe journalists aren't going far enough to focus on core policy issues that are affecting American resources abroad, but rather on the horse race or the day to day annoyances of Donald Trump. Is that a fair? Critique. I mean, do do you all as reporters need to step up more, or do you feel like that is just feeding into this argument around how people are um, construing the institution of news as opposed to focusing on the source of information? I think uh, the issue that a lot of reporters face is that uh, it's what people are interested in. People like reading about the tweets, and they like reading about the palace interviews, but. you know, for the last year or so that Trump has been president, uh, it is kind of an easy story to do about uh, the craziness uh, and chaos in the West Wing. And you saw that uh, this past week with Omarosa being basically dragged out of the White House. And so you can't ignore that. But I think there has been a lack of uh, reporting uh, from the world in terms of uh, you know, what is actually happening uh, at different embassies uh, that you know, Trump is in charge of, uh, you know, how does the military feel about uh, Donald Trump as their commander in chief? Soldiers around the world, do they worry about you know having uh, an unsteady hand? Uh, but I think the incentives for page views, especially, are um, you know kind of sensationalized headlines and stories and hot takes about uh, Trump and. Sometimes you can see the Washington Post op-ed page, uh, and there'll be four different articles about Trump, uh, all saying kind of similar things about, oh, you, you know, the rule of law or uh, the, the norms of a presidency are breaking down, and that's all well and good. But it can sometimes be like, enough, I'm like, I've read this story a million times. Yeah. Oh, one thing I wanted to add uh, to the prior uh, question and answer, uh, Vikram, was Part of the uh, polarization that's occurred with Fox and MSNBC is is also a business model. Um, you know, hmm. so Fox has been, has been highly profitable, uh, and they, you know, Roger Ailes discovered this niche, which was, you know, drive a partisan, uh, a more partisan type of approach, and claim that the others are being biased, and then somehow they they found a way to really monetize that. So. 
they were certainly incentivized by finances to to keep that rolling. I mean, uh, until his demise as a public figure, uh, Bill O'Reilly was, I mean, you know, uh, making huge amount of money for himself and for the network. Uh, and now, hopefully, Tucker Carlson is because he's a good guy. So, <laughs> but um, uh, so anyway, so business model is a big part of it too. No, that's that's a great point, and I and I guess maybe on the business side of things, you know, you've got different outlets. I mean, you all have written for a variety of of different institutions. Um, you, sometimes you see certain in, uh, outlets as, uh, you know, for example, Politico, very very kind of inside baseball as to the process of what's happening in D.C. Um, it, Tim, you've written for everything from you know Time Magazine to New York Daily News to Town and Country Magazine. Um, is there a sense of concern that you have you have as reporters that when you're um, tied to a certain media organization that has a specific thesis or has a certain brand or has a certain owner um, or a certain publisher that you have to execute against what that intention is for the organization or as you as reporters can you just do the business of reporting, focus on the investigation, and not necessarily get caught up on the business side of the equation? Uh, yeah, there always there's often a concern about that, but it's often not uh, backed up by what actually happens. You know, sometimes from the outside, you don't really know, and you you may make assumptions. And two examples are: um, I remember that when the Bancroft family, I think it was, that used to control the Wall Street Journal, was looking at selling it. And when Murdoch came up as a buyer, uh, a lot of my friends at the journal, at the Wall Street Journal, were very concerned about Murdoch because he was viewed as pushing an agenda, uh, uh, and you know, owning Fox, which was, which we've just discussed how how they uh, are oriented. Um, and I think that um, people, I think, were pleasantly surprised that they didn't feel, uh, at least at the beginning, didn't feel like they were being led around to conclusions and that uh, story decisions were being done in a political manner. I don't know if that holds up today. I haven't sort of checked in on that lately. Um, but I think for a while, uh, people were pleasantly surprised. And I know when I went to the New York Daily News, um, um, the owner, uh, Mort Zuckerman, is, is a big, you know, supporter of Israel. And there were those who were who, who worried that, you know, coverage of matters related to Israel or Palestinian issues would be tilted in his toward, uh, you know, uh, toward his views. And I never found that to, to be the case a single time. And in fact, to the contrary, I was once working on a story um, and one of the big Zionist people I called about something was threatening me. He's like, Mort's a great friend of mine and I'll uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was sort of threatening to get more, you know, the owner of the newspaper on on my butt. And oh, wow. um, I said, well, I said, well, you feel free. And I told my bureau chief who told the editor and this person was told to cut the crap. And uh, there was zero. Th th this. Uh, so, I, so that was just an example. Where'd he go, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> No, so that was just an example of how the the stereotype that people may have about certain publication owners being activists is just that a stereotype. It's it's not always true by any means. 
Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And actually, to the point of that, that heroism, if you will, that Tim demonstrated, I mean, right now, <laughs> you know, you take it, just take it. Um, there's, there's also an interesting time, you know, you were talking about this at the very beginning, uh, Tim, that it couldn't be a more important time in the history of our republic, perhaps arguably even the world, to be a journalist, to to be out there seeking information for telling stories, shining a light on challenging issues. Um, at the same time, th- there's there's probably got to be a sense of concern, right? Uh, I mean, just from a human perspective, if we don't necessarily treat the work you do as a, a concept to scrutinize or, or analyze, and we see you as people, um, what do you guys feel like day to day in terms of going down a rabbit hole of chasing a hard truth or exposing a story that you know may not shine favorably on a member of Congress or on the relationship between a senator and the White House or the White House itself? I mean, do you have a sense of, is there a sense of fear that, that ever bubbles up in your mind for either your personal safety? or just what your reputation will be like if you run with a certain story? Or is that just an ho- occupational hazard that you brush, to, brush aside? Well, I think that... Um, you have a yeah. lot of... Ins- uh, pursue stories involving members of Congress or the White House. Uh, I don't think most journalists fear for their safety. Uh, I don't think you want to write about every affair of a member of Congress unless it's all illicit. But generally, I think journalists are pretty fearless. Like there's, if you are a scared type of person, you don't become a journalist. I mean, really in America, as much as, you know, I think being accused of being fake news is a pretty tame uh, type of thing to be worried about compared to journalists in Russia and other countries who are being killed. Uh, uh, by all appearances, by the government, you know, by the hand of the government's uh, henchmen. So I think that um, Americans fear for maybe a bit of the reputation, but we're pretty lucky here, even on on a bad day uh, for our safety. Um, But I do think, obviously, a journalist, the worst thing that uh, professionally is to have an error, as we've talked about a few times. And so people just need to I mean, the best thing is to get a scoop and the worst thing is to get an error. And in a sense, there's a tension between those two things because you want to get out first with the story. Right. But you just cannot forget that the most important thing is accuracy. When we come back, Tim and Dan talk through the news of the week, everything from Chip being held up in the tax conversation to Omarosa's filing. We'll be right back. Check out Sennheiser's latest Bluetooth in-ear headphones, the HD1 Free. Premium materials and flawless craftsmanship combined with stunning Sennheiser sound all in one small and wireless package. And we're not kidding, this makes a great gift. Learn more at Sennheiser.com. And our listeners can get a 25% discount with the code MouthMediaSen at checkout. That's MouthMediaSenN. So Dan and Tim, you know, Tim, you were an alum of of the New York Daily News. Um, this week, they actually reported that 
um, President Trump's own attorneys actually stated that the president's right to free speech um, and to be him and do him, um, Trump's other's right to free speech, um, kind of kind of an interesting legal strategy. But without unpacking that specific statement, it, it's very clear that in this day and age, um, based off of a number of the reports that you file, that a big storyline is how Trump views the world and how his administration um, may view rule of law and their ability to shape that law or meddle in things that they think is their prerogative to meddle in. Uh, as reporters, have you have you noticed a distinct switch in the concept of rule of law or the even the protection of free speech between this president and prior presidents? You know, for example, there's often been a a debate um, among presidents, you know, President Bush, President Obama, about the use of executive orders and, and how much they can really pursue on their own authority without the the mandate or authorization of Congress. That that can often look like a rule of law debate. Or famously, President Bush, um, when uh, he invoked. Uh, a member of his staff, uh, John Yu, to actually write a memo about the use of torture when it came to identifying terrorists or terrorist cells. Um, that became a question of rule of law. Um, but these often seem to be very publicly and rigorously debated conversations. How do you see the concept of rule of law being debated or um, even just leveraged by this administration compared to prior presidents? It, it does seem that... Uh... The, there's a sort of return to the old Louis the Fourteenth, I think it was maxim of <laughs> l'état c'est moi, and um, sort of uh, certainly um, no one would dispute that Trump's ego and sense of self are are pretty large, uh, perhaps larger than most uh, presidents. So um, yeah, they, he he does seem to be at every turn trying to say that. He can do whatever he wants. And, um, you know, there's some truth to that in the sense that the presidency is is an incredibly uh, powerful and fluid office. I mean, uh, you mentioned John Yu's memo about torture. I mean, I, I think that as much as people are against torture and then they had to sort of redefine it to make certain things allowed, right. um, I think that there was an... Uh, I think there was largely an agreement that at the end of the day, the president can do almost anything he wants uh, if he views there to be an important national prerogative. So, for example, warrantless wiretapping and um, interrogation tactics. Those are two uh, fields in which uh, that was largely, it seems, decided that the president can sort of do whatever he wants. Now, does he have more freedom of speech than anyone else? I don't think so, but he certainly has more power to get his speech out. And, um, you know, it doesn't seem like anyone succeeded in, in getting him to uh, take a more measured approach to what he says. Yeah, and, you but know, I'd also, uh, oh, I'd also yeah, point out that, that like, the courts, uh, they, they held uh, the Bush administration accountable, and they stopped some of the programs and uh, some of the activities that uh, he was doing. And remember that famous hospital incident uh, with Jim Comey where John Ashcroft was getting surgery and they right. uh, tried to get uh, him, you know, a pretty heavily sedated Ashcroft to sign off on a, uh, a big national security program that uh, was of questionable legality. Uh, and, uh, you know, Comey rushed to the hospital 
with all of his emergency sirens blaring and, uh, you know, beat the Bush lawyers uh, to, uh, you know, Ashcroft's bedside. And so there are still people uh, who, you know, stand up for the brutal law in the, uh, in the government apparatus. And I think uh, you're probably, you've probably seen Trump get sued, uh, you know, a bunch of different times. And you saw, you know, during his presidency so far, and you saw the courts uh, hold Trump accountable on the travel ban, which was going through multiple different iterations and uh, was only put into place a heavily modified version when the Supreme Court said, uh, you can uh, you know, do this for a few months as we review the case. Really good points, Daniel. And uh, you reminded me of something that I found very interesting. That, uh, about, I don't know, month, six weeks ago, when there was a lot of talk of uh, North Korea, um, I, I found it very interesting that one of the generals who's in charge of the nuclear arsenal, um, I forget if it was in an interview or congressional testimony, but he actually said that the nuclear launch uh, apparatus and personnel would not obey an unlawful order to By launch nuclear weapons. That's right. And I found that fascinating. Um, that the general would enunciate that publicly. I don't know if that was planned or if he got cornered on a question or. or that was at the worst. Just... I think that was at the a security forum, uh, maybe in Halifax. That sounds right. And but I thought I found that fascinating. But the other thing about that is, what is an unlawful order? That 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 statement, as interesting and important as it is, needs to be interpreted as well because what is an unlawful order and how is that decided? Basically. That comes back to the president being almost omnipotent in terms of being able to do almost whatever, whatever he wants. Uh, now it depends; it always depends on the details. But I still found that interesting, even though almost by nature the president saying something makes it lawful. One one other example of that is um, when the president can declassify any any secret information uh, without any justification. He simply by him sort of saying it publicly, it's inherently not classified. So the president, by almost by definition, can't leak because whatever he wants to reveal, he can reveal. Um, so it's, and he has it's special, an and he has special powers to give uh, top senior members of his staff clearances without going through the normal processes of uh, government clearance process. And so I think which is Jerry very worrisome because there's. All, while that's a really good point. That's so that while some of these security clearance things can be abused and can be strange, and uh, at the same time there's a reason for them. And so the depending on how widespread that is and who these clearances are specially awarded to, that can be a very worrisome type of situation. Just look at the Flynn situation. Uh, you know he's accused of very strange behavior. Um, right down to texting <laughs> during the uh, inaugural oath. Um, so, I mean, the, the security clearance, uh, special access, special granting of security clearances 
it would be great if there was more transparency around that. That, that that's an incredible point, and I you know one area in which the president's power only goes so far um, is when it requires Congress to get involved. And we're we're seeing that play out in real time um, right now as uh, both chambers think through a tax reform package. Uh, you know, Tim, um, as a as a new father, um, one element of the tax conversation that was pronounced uh, this week by Senator from uh, the junior senator from Florida, Marco Rubio, was actual tax credits for children. Um, and similarly, this week, Senator Lisa Murkowski said that it was a real shame um, that there is actually a uh, you know, there's been a lack of extension of CHIP, the the children's uh, health care insurance program. Um, I'm wondering from your perspective, either, you know, as a reporter or a father, when something like something so uh, obviously valued in any society, American or otherwise, as investing in the well-being and the welfare of our children um, becomes a political football. What does that actually mean for the process of, of both chambers of Congress right now? Or, or what do you expect to see, I guess, maybe putting your political hat on to play out when it comes to their votes, Murkowski's or Rubio's, going into the tax package, which is set to be voted on uh, as soon as this week? Well, I think uh, I want to hear what Daniel thinks, too, but I think that it's another sign that uh, it's almost the only thing that most people agree on is that Congress is broken. And uh, this tax bill is a is there's no overarching strategy to it as much as most of these big fat tax bills are, uh, you know, don't seem to have an overall strategy and they're not done in a transparent fashion. This seems to be worse than all the others. Um, and um, there's all these huge things being done, like changing how, uh, you know, real estate deductibility and all these things, huge things being done that will have ripple effect impact on, in various ways. And it's all, you know, uh, just being done in such a, a non-transparent, last minute, no overall strategy type of manner. Uh, and, you know, these issues of ch uh, child deduction and ch ch uh, child health care are, are just a pretty vivid example of that. By the way, I think that um, another element of the Rubio thing, which you, I, you're wondering how I'm going to do this, but I think it's uh, a little bit so similar to uh, Gillibrand's stuff in the last couple of weeks. I think you're seeing in his action on that, putting his foot down on the, on the child deduction and her getting way out front on the um, treatment of women. I think you're seeing the first shots fired for 2020. Uh, and uh, those two uh, were already being talked about a lot. And I think that the, uh, they're sort of laying a line in the sand on some things. And I think that'll be very interesting. By the way, I should, full disclosure, Gillibrand was uh, in my college class. So oh, no um, kidding. it's interesting to be to watch her have such a great effect. Did you know her at all, Tim, or do you remember anything about uh, what she was like on campus? Or More in passing. Just... We had a lot of friends in common. You know, um, I saw her at my uh, reunion a few years ago, and we said hello. Nice, nice. Well, well, Dan, you had actually, you know, this week talked about or, or you know, written reports 
on the the much talked about um, letting go of uh, one of the president's uh, maybe not highest level staffers, but highly visible staffer, Omarosa. Um, she, you know, what, rose to to notoriety um, through the NBC show The Apprentice um, when when Donald Trump was headlining uh, that that space of reality TV, and she joined the White House to um, help engage uh, the African American and Black communities. Um, and and famously, one of her first kind of um, highly visible impacts was to convene a lot of uh, administrators, deans, professors from historically Black colleges and universities. Um, this, of course, uh, resulted in the, the infamous photo of Kellyanne Conway seated in the Oval Office um, with her legs up on the couch, which maybe received some unfair, but definitely an, a high amount of attention. I, I'm curious, from your perspective, having covered um, what went down in that firing or letting go this week, um, what that actually means when it comes to this administration engaging the black community, or put another way, we've seen this steady drip of firings of senior staffers being let go for various reasons, and yet we've seen his base turn out when he goes on the stump um, in, in huge numbers. Uh, does he actually have a problem with this black community, particularly on the heels of, of the Roy Moore loss in Alabama this week in which um, African-American women turned out in huge numbers to elect uh, Doug Jones? What, what, what does Omarosa's firing or letting go say about both the state of, of staffing on the in the administration as well as the engagement with the black community in America? I think it uh, indicates that uh, you know, Trump is not going to recover anytime soon in his popularity with African-American voters. This is a guy who's at under 10% popularity or job approval rating among African-Americans, uh, which is probably a historic low. I think even George W. Bush had a higher rating. And uh, that diversity of the administration and the White House uh, leaves a lot to be desired if you're a minority. Uh, I think the my friend Annie Linsky of the Boston Globe, she had a story about how there are only three uh, commissioned officers in the White House who are African-American. Uh, wow. And uh, she they, they have one name, uh, and but we don't even know the, the names of the other two people. And so those people might be a kind of like, you know, those, those fake... Uh, employees that you used to have on like the Russian government roster that people could just skim off money for. Um, and I think that has real world policy implications in terms of uh, the administration uh, administration's priorities on issues that affect minority communities a lot, uh, like healthcare and education. And so, uh, and you you even see that in their picks of. Uh, judicial nominees, where it is 92% white people, basically, who you know, have gotten those, uh, those judgeships. And so that's an indication of also the Republican Party being historically pretty unpopular in the last couple of decades with African Americans. And, and Tim, you actually, you know, you hinted out a moment ago how um, the senator from New York, Christian Gillibrand, um, is it Gillibrand or Gillibrand? Am I saying that incorrectly? I think it's Gillibrand. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, you know, as well we as, as t we knew her in college as Tina Rutnick, but <laughs> I guess Gillibrand is her uh, married name. 
Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay, good to know, good to know. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned both her as well as Senator Rubio from Florida making overtures at, at 2020 in terms of, of presidential runs. Um, I'm curious from your perspective what you thought about this week's, um, you know, highly watched election outcome in Alabama. Obviously, Roy Moore, who is alleged to have preyed um, inappropriately on several younger women, um, was uh, ousted from the Senate race. And Senator-elect Doug Jones uh, leaned in um, with the victory, although it was quite slim. Um, you know, when with an eye towards 2020, but perhaps more immediately with an eye towards 2018, uh, how do you actually see this election impacting the RNC's messaging or strategy going forward into next year? Uh, Dan, we'll start with you and Tim and love to get your or sorry, Tim, we'll start with you and Dan, I'd love to get your thoughts as well. Um, well, of course, each side is playing it, um, trying to play it to their advantage. And the Republicans are saying it's not a trend that Alabama and Virginia are not a trend. There's, you know, individual factors, uh, all politics is local and the Democrats are saying the other, the opposite. And, you know, the press took it as a big omen, I think. And I think, uh, it is pretty, a pretty big deal when, when Alabama replaces its longtime Republican Senator, who's now, you know, in the cabinet, although a wounded, a wounded duck, it would seem, if not a lame duck as attorney general, but, uh, Yes, I mean, it's very surprising when that deeply red state uh, goes Democrat. Uh, I think that it is an interesting lesson for both sides that um, if the minority turnout, which appeared to power uh, uh, the the victory uh, of the Democrat, if the minority turnout is that high in 2020, that's going to be a real problem for whoever the Republican nominee is. Uh, and, um, you know, frankly, if the minority turnout had been that strong in t a year ago, then I think you would be talking about all the investigations of Hillary Clinton, right? Absolutely. Because certainly, certainly there would have been investigations of some of her stuff, too, that would that might have been reopened. But um, so I think that the, the minority turnout will be massively important. And it's a reminder um, that um, it can have a real effect. And I would and I would say that um, it's interesting that Trump is uh, there was a Washington Post report uh, recently that Trump wants to campaign and uh, heavily next year in the midterms, uh, you know, but that definitely could drag down a lot of nominees if he doesn't uh, pick uh, good candidates to campaign for because he's a pretty toxic brand to. Uh, millions of Americans. And so he doesn't want to make the Republican Party's woes next year worse. I mean, presumably, if he does campaign for people, he's he may he may do a lot of preaching to the choir, you know, going campaigning in places where they know he's popular and where a Republican is all but sure to win. That's one way he could do it. It'll be interesting to see if he really does campaign and swing. And this is essentially what you were saying, Daniel, but agreeing with you, it'll be fascinating to see if he does go into swing districts that are really up for grabs, uh, because if he does, um, um, he's he's certainly taking a risk. We actually, you know, for for all of this commentary, you know, what it's whether it's about the strategy for the Republican or Democratic parties going into the next round of elections, um, whether it's bringing to light lots of um, you know horrific allegations of sexual misconduct 
uh, or if it's even just kind of broadly talking about the tax package, there's no doubt that where Americans get informed um, or even how they, they form tribes um, is, is, you know, intimately connected to how they're getting news, how they're getting their information. Um, we very much appreciate you both, uh, not in terms of just joining the podcast today, but you know your storied careers of reporting on a wide swath of issues um, and, and taking a stand to, to really un unearth some hard truths. I guess, you know, in closing, I'm curious as you both, you know, take the time, um, you know, with, with baby doll in the background, as well as, you know, Tim, you're on the road, you're flying airport noises in the background. When you think about uh, your work as journalists, um, and you think about kind of what you're focused on this upcoming week, going right into Christmas, you know, a tax package that's set to be voted on. Uh, what is your view as to what happens next for the American reporter? Is it is it business as usual? Does the role become more elevated? Do you think the responsibility gets a little bit more um, uh, sincere and, and maybe burdensome as you as you try and, and offer information to the electorate out there? I'm just curious in close thoughts the the sense of American identity of a reporter as we talked about in the opening is 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 changing in real time so as you wake up every day and you look forward to next week what is it that that motivates you or concerns you about um, offering this connectivity between information knowledge and the policies that we elect into office Dan I, I guess I would say that I think with the media getting a little more credibility in the last year or so as I mentioned earlier, uh, now the next challenge is to build on that and really win back Americans uh, who have uh, disappeared from being regular news consumers and are reliant uh, in their partisan filter bubbles. You know, people who are only reading Drudge or only reading Salon.com. You know, we are in a golden opportunity to get those people to subscribe to mainstream top outlets and uh, you know, use that information uh, to inform their own lives. You know, in America, politics is not should not be at the center of everything, and it feels like today it is. That's a really good point, Daniel. And by the way, uh, uh, as we are winding up, I I wonder if Daniel could tell people how they can subscribe to Playbook and Vikram, uh, perhaps mention our three Twitter handles as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so people can. Uh, Daniel, remind people of yours. Mine is at Burger Info, B-U-R-G-E-R. Uh, and um, please so, feel free to I'm, follow I'm, there. And, and Daniel, how do you subscribe to Playbook and what's your handle? And then maybe I'll give a rumination after that. So I, I'm at D. Lippman, D-L-I-P-P-M-A-N. And to subscribe to go to Playbook, you go to politico.com slash playbook. There you and, go. And uh, it's well worth it uh, to get on that list. Thank you. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, I, for me as a, I do more freelance reporting these days because I'm a consultant as sort of my day job, if you will. But when I do do a story, it pretty much takes all the oxygen. It takes a lot of concentration and effort to, to again, make sure that it's a good story and it has some element of being a scoop. And then also that it's accurate. You know, you really have to, it's worth every second you spend every extra bit of time to try and make sure something's accurate and fair. Um, but as far as, you know, what I'm looking at for my next story, I want to try and make sure I have something to say that I'm not just another voice saying the same thing that I, that I have, a uh, something new to tell people. So, 
that's what I'll be looking for. And I, th I think, um, you know, uh, I, I, mean, I know that Daniel will be also looking for the scoop, even as he every day is telling everyone um, sort of he's the village square of all the different newspapers and public <laughs> statements of the public officials. But he's also looking for scoops, too. Isn't that right, Daniel? Uh, it is. Uh, and I'm about to board a, a plane to Mexico City, so maybe I'll work on some scoops while I'm on my vacation. <laughs> Speaking of a place where it's not so safe to be a journalist, again, we have it pretty good here. Uh, all, all they do here, for the most part, is call, call you names, which uh, is no big deal compared to the dangers faced in Mexico and Russia and other places. That's a great point. And, you know, you both have spent um, your time, your energy, your sweat, your resources uh, – uh, unearthing some difficult challenges that are presented in our moment in society. But but as you underscored, Tim, this is a unique opportunity in one of the best uh, republics that celebrates uh, that that work and, and celebrates those insights. And no matter how many tweets come after you guys, um, the work that you all do day to day um, is really core to America's identity and frankly um, should be applauded and celebrated even at a time in which uh, journalism is is under fire through the eyes of this Oval Office. Uh, Tim Berger, Daniel Lipman, thank you so much for joining American Enough, and have a happy holiday. Thank, thank you, you, sir. And thanks for doing this great podcast in the greatest country in the world. Thank, thank you, guys. You. Happy New Year. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. <laughs>